welcome to this week's episode of Swig of Intellect. I'm Patrick DeButler, and I'm here with Lisa Gray. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Hello, Lisa. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Listeners, thanks again for joining us for a Swig of Intellect, your conversation companion. We'll share the news you need to know, give you insights into your, your media sources, and share a couple of shots of culture ensuring that you have something else to talk about besides the presidential election and COVID still. <laughs> Two subjects that never go away. Oh, yeah. But we are, we do, we, but we've got a couple of um, unique stories this week besides the election and COVID. And there has been a new species of primate in Myanmar. Yes, exactly, in Myanmar. So they've discovered a new new species. Very exciting. Very exciting. So I believe it's your turn to do the source review this week. Yes, it is. So I'm very excited. I'm going to be bringing you one of the oldest and most highly respected magazines in American history, The Atlantic. Um, ah, now, love The Atlantic. Ah, so there we go. We've already got one fan. Um, so The Atlantic, uh, for those of you who might not know it, is an American magazine which was founded in 1857 in Boston. And it was called The Atlantic Monthly at the time. Um, nowadays, it's just The Atlantic. It was very famous when it was launched because it was launched as the premier literary and cultural commentary magazine. And it also had some of the greatest, if not probably most of the greatest American writers of its time who were founders of it. And it was meant to be a magazine that would talk about the abolition of slavery, education, um, all the other major political issues of the time. So just three years before the Civil War. And its founders included Ralph Waldo Emerson, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Henry Longfellow and Harriet Beecher Stowe, among many, many other distinguished founders. And very quickly, um, actually in a a surprisingly short amount of time, it became considered one of the finest, if not the finest, magazine in the English-speaking world. Um, Now, in the 20th century, it experienced a lot of financial hardship, um, many, many ownership changes, before it was finally bought by a businessman named David Bradley, who remade it as a general um, editorial magazine, where he aimed it at very serious national readers and what he called thought leaders, so so mainly political and um, leaders in in, uh, economics. Um, in 2010, it entered its first profit in a decade, and in 2016, it was named Magazine of the Year in the most prestigious magazine awards in America, so the Magazine Editors Awards. And in 2017, Bradley sold the majority share of the magazine to the widow of Steve Jobs under her Emerson Collective, which also funds Axios and quite a few other things, which is quite an interesting um, group to do with education and publishing in America. And some of the most famous stories that is have published have included pieces such as uh, the abolitionist Julia Ward Ho's first piece on abolitions, on ab- abolitionism, excuse me. Um, it printed a lot of Mark Twain's writings, include some of his uh, stories which have never appeared anywhere else, and including stories which were thought to be lost and which were then found in back issues of the Atlantic. Um, it also was one of the first to see the changes in 20th century American literature and published Hemingway. It also published one of the most famous letters in civil rights in the 20th century, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. And in the two, late 2000s, early 2010s, it published one of the most famous pieces on American 
American politics uh, when the editor Jeffrey Goldberg published his piece on the Obama doctrine, which really became the template for how a lot of people saw Obama's foreign policy. Um, now, it also has a very interesting history of trying to be as independent as possible. It refused to support a presidential candidate until 1964, when for the first time ever it endorsed Lyndon Johnson over Barry Goldwater. Um, now, for the third endorsement um, that it ever did, it endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it's been a very vocally anti-Trump magazine. Uh, now, before it, you could argue it was more slightly more liberal, but, but pretty close to the center, certainly very close to the center of America. In politics, but it's really, really decided that uh, to take a very strong stand against Donald Trump over the last few years. It included running a story which was very highly in support of impeachment and a lot of stories in favor of impeachment. And it was also the magazine that broke the story where Donald Trump um, had called dead soldiers losers. It's often ranked in the top 10 list of magazines in the world uh, by experts and critics alike. And it still is a very popular, very, it gets a lot of traffic to its website. Um, so, so my conclusion of it is if you want a really well-written, very highly regarded literary, political, and also cultural magazine, it's probably, I would probably put it at the top of what it does in America, even ahead of The New Yorker. Um, I think it's just a bit more full and it covers more. It's also got a very good dedicated science section, uh, which is something Lisa and I both love reading about, but it's it's a really very thorough and very interesting one. And also it tends to bring in enough writers, I would argue, from different sides uh, of the perspective. For a long time, Andrew Sullivan would write from the centre-right. Um, you had writers like James Fallows, who was excellent, who did a very good takedown of The Economist in the 90s, which was in The Atlantic. Christopher Hitchens wrote a lot for The Atlantic. Um, Gore Vidal, lots and lots of writers. And it's just a very thoroughly well put together, long format articles. So, so they're a really good read, good size. Um, and I'd say it's in one of the best sources on American politics and American scientific news. Thank you, Patrick. I mean, I've always been impressed with The Atlantic. And I've often wondered why it hasn't gotten the global traction or reputation um, that Time or The New Yorker has. I mean, Time's, you know, a weekly. It's a lot more, um, you get your your taste of what's going on, but nothing as in-depth as you do The Atlantic. But, um, but yeah, The New Yorker has seemed to have travelled further than The Atlantic. What do you think? Well, listen, it's, it's a really interesting point. I think it, it, it's often odd what sort of markets magazines get, you know, like The Spectator is one of the most highly read magazines in the UK, but I don't know how well it travels outside of the UK, um, and, and certainly not in America, where, where they had to create the American Spectator. So I think it's a fairly similar, I, it, it's, it's rather similar at the same time being quite different in many ways from The Spectator is in the UK. Um, it's it's interesting because I'm I'm not a fan of the New Yorker. I actually I actually don't enjoy the New Yorker at all as a magazine. I much prefer the Atlantic, for example, uh, but which seems to put me in in a relative minority. It still gets a lot of readers. Um, I mean, I think the website gets 11 million readers, which is you know substantial, and it sells at least 500 to 600 thousand copies of the magazine itself, which is which is pretty good. But you're right that internationally it's not not as well known. Uh, which I think is a shame because it's actually, as you say, um, very high quality articles, much more in depth and much more highbrow than than Time or Newsweek. Um, I'd argue the Atlantic is is a, is a better publication than both of those, especially the way they are now, where I don't think they have quite the influence that they used to. Or actually, I, I know they don't. Um, I was I was introduced to the Atlantic by journalists, so yeah. friends of mine who were writing for it sent me their articles and. It was really nice to see them give be given the grace to write quite in depth stories. It was just 
um, in the early noughties where um, it was the first, I think, one of the first waves of um, of, of digital impacting, you know, uh, how many journalists are being hired for doing in-depth stories. And I noticed it with some of the newspapers I had at home, how newspapers became thinner because the kind of revenue that these media conglomerates were making weren't, um, weren't, couldn't afford the the quality of journalism that that they were originally presenting. So for me, the Atlantic was oh, it is possible that in this day day and age, you can actually afford to pay journalists properly to write really in depth um, insights into what's going on in the world. So that's what I love about the Atlantic too. Yes, I think that's a good point. In in, in certain ways, maybe it's a journalist magazine. You know that journalists really respect it. It's always had a high reputation. Lots of journalists have loved to write for the Atlantic. And I think in that way, it's really kept up with its literary tradition. Um, they're, they're, they're very, very well-written pieces in the Atlantic still today. So we love the Atlantic. Great. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> now on to speak of the news. So we had some good news last week to do with COVID that there's a vaccine on the way. Yeah, so, so Pfizer and, and the vaccine, I heard not everyone was happy about the news. I, I saw that Donald Trump Jr. had tweeted that it was all a ploy and a plot to get his father out of office because it had come after the election, uh, which Pfizer says was not the case. But we'll have to leave that up to you to decide. But, but how, how, yeah, I just don't, I'm not, should I even attempt to try and understand <laughs> His, his strategy there or should I just leave it alone and no I, I think I think I think probably we've got other things to talk about uh, okay <laughs> but what I find really interesting about it that I wanted to talk to you about Patrick is you know what does this mean um, because from what I've read um, there's a 90% success rate at the one that's leading the charge um, they're starting to um, you know uh, there's apparently two vast football pitch sized facilities equipped with hundreds of large freezers uh, in the US and in Belgium that are going to look to roll out millions and millions of vaccines. I also read somewhere that the vaccine is gives um, is a cover for only seven days. It still feels very early in the game. I've, I understand from some of my friends that work in pharmaceuticals that usually you get a grace period of testing a vaccine like this for a good couple of years. And because of the situation we're in, we've obviously fast-tracked that. But um it's, um, yeah, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see if it, how effective it's going to be. Yes, exactly. And I think that's very normal with a vaccine anyway. The early the early stages of a vaccine, how effective, because, you know, it's still fairly randomised, so we don't know until it gets spread into the population. I, I thought it was really interesting, though, because I saw part of the coronavirus team that Joe Biden has set up, and they were saying, for example, that they were quite worried they didn't actually have the refrigeration equipment and the freezers, and that they didn't want the military necessarily to get involved, but they thought they might be the only people who had it. And it was quite interesting because, of course, they haven't been able to really begin the transition with the government and coordinate um, yet. So that's another problem that the Americans will have is, is refrigeration. I think it needs to be kept at minus 95 degrees Celsius. And so yeah. you, you need very, very strong refrigeration. And they did mention that that might be a problem rolling that out in the US. Yeah. Because what, from what I've read this morning, and we'll include the article in our in our um, in our in our submission, but Pfizer plans to supply 50 million doses globally this year, yep. and a further 1.3 billion doses next year. Um, there's also some concern about you know the the, the priorities of um, the Europe and America getting it, and then it taking a little bit longer to get to Africa. But um, um, I guess you know there's all countries in in South America and Asia Pacific have also pre-ordered the vaccine too. 
So it's um it's they're not yeah they're not being shy about the logistical effort it's going to cause. But um, you yeah, know, we've sure. fast tracked this you know quick enough. Hopefully they can work that out sooner rather than later. Yes, well, exactly. But also because America's pulled out of things like the WHO and etc., it remains to be seen whether international coordination will be as smooth as it would have been in the last few years. Um, we mustn't forget that America has changed dramatically in the last four years, especially its relationship with the world and, and with world health institutions. And we also have to see whether that affects the delivery of a vaccine. So there's a lot of questions which remain to be answered, and we're really just starting now. So it's great news that a potential vaccine is here, but but it's very early days. Absolutely. I also read uh, that Vanuatu has officially uh, recorded its first case of COVID. Um, Health officials announced on Wednesday, ending the Pacific nation status as one of the few countries in the world that remain virus free. Um, There are still um, uh, Micronesia, Palau, Samoa and Tonga are all believed to have not had a record of um, it, uh, 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 been, uh, sorry, I'll say that again. Uh, uh, Micronesia, Palau, Samoa, Tonga are all believed to still be free of the virus. I was just, there was a part of me that was just like, oh, there is places that have, haven't been touched by the virus yet. No, absolutely. There are, there are some places left in the world, uh, thank God, and, and hopefully may it continue for them. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, they, in this article that we've included from Al Jazeera, they, 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 the re, they, they, they leave that to the fact that they've been pretty um, pretty strict about flights coming into the country up until this point. They haven't seen the economic impact of that yet, but it's um, it's all good to take in as we, you know, we're in week two of uh, lockdown version two. Mm-hmm. Um, now on to the election. Um, you alluded to how much the America has changed in the last four years. I think it's also the feeling of America has changed a lot in the last couple of days since Saturday. <laughs> Yes, well, I mean, look, I, I think everything is still up in the air. There, there's a lot going on and and a lot. So one of the first stories we were going to mention, which I thought was hilarious and also incredibly sad and worrying about international politics, is that Downing Street's congratulatory message to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They actually had prepared a statement in case Trump had won. And someone who is incredibly lazy at Downing Street had just written over. And in the background, if you looked clear, uh, you could still see the, the underlying Trump congratulation message. Um, so someone at Downing Street normally should get fired, but the way things are going in the world, uh, it doesn't seem like it. But it was pretty sloppy. But um, it's really interesting. I mean, so so many things will change, but it's not over yet. I mean, the election is still being very much contested on the other side. Uh, Mike Pompeo said, um, yeah, there's a really smooth transition into a second term Trump administration this morning at his press briefing. Um, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell has said the president, which is absolutely true under the law, has the right to contest um, the electoral results until I believe the 14th of December, which it looks like he's very much going to do. So things are not sort of settled yet. Yes, there's been a massive election. And, and yes, Joe Biden has set up a transition. He's received congratulatory calls from Macron and Johnson and many other world leaders. Um, apart from the world, the leader of the Prime Minister of Slovenia, who decided to back a different horse and congratulated Donald Trump on his enormous victory. Um, so we'll see how that plays out for Slovenia, for Biden administration comes in. But um, 
it's 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 really it's really interesting times uh here in the uk there's a lot of worry about joe biden is is historically not a very pro uk politician uh, he sees himself as being very close to ireland and he really likes the eu and so i know that the uh, british on the whole are quite worried about the relationship they'll have with joe biden um boris johnson was the first person as is traditionally because of the uh, special relationship to be able to to call and congratulate biden which he did um, but there's there are huge amounts of questions which are coming in now. Um, Speaking of questions, uh, you were sharing this morning about the uh, U- USPS whistleblower admitting to lying about voter fraud. Yes, so one of the big stories uh, recently uh, that Republicans who were contesting the election results said that they'd had a whistleblower from the postal office who'd tell, told them all about voter fraud, and they were basing a lot of their contests on that. And he's admitted this morning that he made it up; um, he just lied. And so, so that was big news. He testified in front of Congress, and he just said, "Well, it's completely untrue." He just lied, and and that was it. He was unhappy about the results, and. And um, so, so we'll see if that affects the lawsuits. I know a lot of the lawsuits have been thrown out, and also, funnily enough, the rulings that Rob Justice Roberts has have done so far seem to be going against uh, Donald Trump's contest. And there doesn't seem to be much evidence so far that there was voter fraud um, on any level. They haven't. Uh, the Republicans haven't been able to bring much. Um, also, they'd set up a voter hotline that, in case you'd been a witness to voter fraud, and they just got inundated with you know comedians just basically making fun of them. Uh, for wanting to contest the election. So so that's been a bit of a disaster. But there are more serious news. Like um, there's a big story that's coming out about Donald Trump, what he might do uh, over the few, next few months. And it looks like he's going to go quite rogue and, and break with precedent. Um, and he might not be as much of a lame duck president as people thought. Um, so Saudi Arabia was, of course, very disappointed that he lost, as were, were Israel and the other Gulf states. And it looks like Trump is trying to push through a massive arms and weapons deal to Saudi Arabia, which is quite something considering that the majority of the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Um, and Saudi Arabia is, is the country most responsible, if anyone, for 9-11, that they've ended up in this section where now they're really using American power to block off Iran while they can. And it looks like Trump is very much playing into that game. And, you know, he's fired Esper, the um, Secretary of Defense. He's fired the second uh, in command at the Pentagon. He's really wiping out a lot of opposition to him. And so, you know, this is far from over what, what can happen and in many ways unprecedented in American history. So I think for everyone who thinks it's all over, the votes have gone in. Joe Biden's won the most votes of all time. Well, not so fast. There's a lot that's going to happen between now and January. And Donald Trump hasn't left office yet. Well, we'll, we'll keep a close eye on it here, won't we, Patrick? <laughs> we'll try like everyone else, I think. And now on to a different story. In a rare find, scientists have identified a new species of primate, a, a, a tree dweller living in the forests of central now Myanmar. <laughs> Myanmar. Myanmar. With a mask-like face um, framed by a, sh- uh, a shock of unruly grey hair. The Papa I- and Ingwa. Papa Lango. Yeah, thank you. Named for an extinct volcano, volcano home to its largest population, some 100 individuals have been around for at least a million years, according to a study detailing to find published on Wednesday in Zoological Research. But with only 200 of, two, of, of the 250 left in wild today, experts will recommend that the leaf-eating species be classified as critically endangered. Samples of the feces collected by um, Moenberg and his colleagues in the forest match those of from the museum and showed that 
that was previously unknown Langua is still roaming in the wild. That that gave me a bit of hope. Yes, no, it's a great story, and they're they're very sweet. The photographs are really cute. These sort of grey haired popolangas, but it's always fantastic when you find um, a new species. Uh, it's just a shame it's so endangered, but um, but it's a great story. Absolutely. Now onto our time capsule. So from Slovakia, an aviation company um, has gracefully transforms a car into an aircraft that actually flies. I've um, I've given the um, the listeners new video footage highlighting the vehicle's maiden footage, where the air car races along an airport truck before um, pausing to deploy its wings and tails. Upon reaching 200 kilometers per hour, the air car lifts off and rises 1,500 meters above the ground. Um, it's, a, it's got a BMW engine and it's two-seat aircraft. This, car, this The car plane's inventor, Professor Stephen Klein, has dedicated his life to flying cars and would have achieved something unde- undeniably futuristic. This got me a bit excited. It's great. I'd love to have a look. Uh... And we'll go through your link. Um, so from the past, I wanted to give you a slightly more humorous one this week. Uh, so it's from the more recent past. But I wanted to talk to you about Pantone 448C, otherwise known as the world's ugliest color. Um, so it was, descri- it was discovered by scientists and given the Pantone color label. Um, but what I thought was really funny about it, it's, it's described often as a drab, dark kind of brown. But it was considered so unattractive by every single person who saw it in the laboratory that it sort of became immediately famous. And the Australian government picked up on it and they said, we have to use this as the color of all our plain cigarette packaging. And apparently it was so successful at being unattractive that it was later selected by loads and loads of countries around the world. Um, and it's been actually effective at turning people off. The French say when they trialed it, you know, everybody was like, oh, it's horrible, it's an, a horrible color. And it was quite funny that apparently it really is almost unanimous. But what I thought was really, really funny is that actually a few people in fashion found it quite attractive. And so you've had these parkas which have been made um, out of them and other clothes. And apparently people really don't like it. But but fashion designers, a few of them have decided to give it a try. Um, so anyway, I thought it was a really funny sort of small story. Brilliant. That's great. Um, yeah, there's one thing for disruption, isn't there? And then there's a thing that just some things just should never be tried. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the Australian government putting it to cigarette packaging, I think, is a really, really interesting strategy for yeah. sure. Shots of culture. So what's your shot of culture this week? So this week, I wanted to actually give you one of my favourite books, uh, which I've reread recently, uh, which is The Histories by Herodotus. And it's translated by Tom Holland, who's a very well-known um, historian in the UK and translator as well of ancient Greek and Latin. And it's considered one of the first, if not the first, uh, book of history ever written in the West. And it's this wonderful book which chronicles the the wars between Greece and Persia, but so much more. It's more like a novel in many ways. It's so readable. Herodotus is more like a really great novelist. Uh, But what's very funny is that the Persians and a lot of Greeks called him the father of lies because he talked about ants, you know, which were the size of buildings and all these fantastical elements. But funnily enough, historians have discovered that over time for a historian, for the very first historian writing in antiquity, he actually got a lot of things right. And still to this day, many of his descriptions about things he'd seen, he went all the way to Egypt, he went all around the Mediterranean, he went really far up into the Baltics and met tribes, including the Scythians, who were part of the, the... modern Russia now and a lot of his descriptions actually really hold true archaeologists have discovered 
but it's it's one of the most fun books you can read because the stories are incredible. Um, you know, one minute you'll be reading a really serious story about a battle between Greece and Persia, and the next you'll be talking about a musician who has an affair with a woman, is pushed overboard and is saved by a dolphin, and he writes about it with the equal sense of seriousness to the battle. So for a modern perspective, it's really funny. Um, but it's a beautiful translation. Tom Holland is quite a successful novelist now. Um, his books about Rome and and other novels, but he's a wonderful, wonderful translator, and it's really funny. He keeps all the humor, all the sort of sexiness, and all the sensuality of Herodotus original. And it's it's a re- I really recommend it for a great read if you if you've ever got the time. Oh, that sounds amazing! Yeah, thank you for sharing. So my shot of culture is the Crown series for on the weekend. And I have been very impressed with this series. Have you watched it? Yes, yes, yes. I, I like The Crown. I, I like the first two seasons the most. The third one deviates quite a lot from history. It's still it's still well done. But um, I'll be very curious because I read the reviews for the fourth um, season and they said it's it's pretty good on the whole. But again, like the third season, it tends to deviate quite far in many aspects from, from the history. Yeah, uh, I mean, they're already saying that the the actress playing Princess Diana should get awards, um, mm. but they they're not they're complaining about Gillian Armstrong as Margaret Thatcher, which do, do you mean uh, Gill- Gillian Anderson? Oh, sorry, Gillian, yeah, Gillian Armstrong. Sorry, actually, sorry, I think it's I think it's Gillian Anderson. I think we're both it, getting it wrong. Gillian Anderson. Gillian Anderson. Gillian Armstrong is a wonderful Australian director. <laughs> <laughs> I've only had one coffee this morning. Sorry about that. Um, Anderson from the X Files is playing Margaret Thatcher. She's also um, she's also dating the um, the creator of The Crown. And I read a great article about how they how they separated work from from personal life on set. I thought it was quite funny. I'll include it in the um, in our links. But um, I saw some of Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing her portrayal of Margaret Thatcher. I think yeah. it's a very interesting part of history. Yes, I, I, it looks really fun. I saw, I said, uh, apparently it's a very unsympathetic uh, portrait of Charles in this season, whereas last season was a bit more. And also they're, they're going to showcase a lot of the big events like Mountbatten's death in Ireland and and quite a few other things. But I, I heard from the reviews it's actually not bad. And visually, I, Peter Morgan's a fantastic writer and visually the series is phenomenal. I mean, they're all beautiful to watch the episodes. So I'm looking forward to, to watching it. Great. Well, thanks everyone for listening this week. I'm Lisa Gray. And I'm Patrick DeButler. We'll see you next week. Talk to you next week.